Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, just as promised, today we're going to hear the continuation of the previous podcast in which Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake were discussing creativity and chaos. And this is from the first series of trialogues they held, along with Terence McKenna, at Esalen in uh, September of 1989. There's one little hitch here, I guess, and that is that the first 12 minutes of the tape had a really bad hum in it. I guess there was some sort of a problem with the line connection from the board, but it magically cleared up about 12 minutes or so into the recording. And I did my best to remove that annoying hum, since it was really pretty loud. But unfortunately, taking it out sort of distorted their voices just a little bit. But it's only for the first few minutes, and it's not nearly as bad as listening to that hum. So let's not delay any longer. When we left them in our last program, Rupert Sheldrake was just beginning to describe his understanding that mathematical attractors pulled from the front, as he put it. And uh, so we'll pick up with Rupert concluding his thoughts about chaotic attractors, and he'll be immediately followed by Ralph Abraham expressing his surprise with both Rupert's and Terence McKenna's take on attractors, which he didn't quite buy into. Thank you. 
operating system that says eventually you'll get to the destination, the station, which might not be a point, it might be a circular track, or it might be a tangled up hidden track, which is a chaotic character. That doesn't mean that the attractor is pulling the train. So to think of the attractor as pulling the train, I think is suggested by the word attractor, which never
Los Angeles or London unless human beings were purposely and had destinations they wanted to get to, unless railway companies had schedules and planned the way they ran the trains in accordance with what they thought supply and demand was. Um, that train wouldn't be running. There's a sense in which the station is an attractor. If I want to go by train to London, um, I get on a train that's going to London because intent is my purpose to go to London. And the idea that the train can be modelled as if there's a tractor, but actually it's just a thing, system, dynamical system running along the rails that happens during that month. If you observe enough trains on the London Railroad, you see lots of going to London, say, within the model of London's and the tractor, but it's got nothing to do with the traction. That's, in a sense, a subterfuge because it has got a great deal to do with traction. People are, there are railway lines running everywhere, in particular, the very few people travel on the from
as the bottom of an energy well, well then anything put into the energy well will make its way to the attractor because the attractor is uh, the least energetic state. And so the whole system uh, tends to move in that direction. The idea that the cause is in the future makes hash of the notion of causality. And so this is, I think, on the part of science, something that they're very concerned to eliminate because it will, the backwash from that assumption will make the practice of science uh, much more difficult. Nevertheless, uh, you know, Ralph and his colleagues have been modeling for many years now plant growth, dripping faucets, uh, coupled oscillators like groups of cuckoo clocks hung on the wall and this sort of thing. Uh, the, the modeling task, ni plus ultra, is history. Uh, this is where you're no longer playing a little game to demonstrate something to a group of students or colleagues, but where you actually are saying our models, our methods, are powerful enough that now we will take on the real world, not even the real world of biology, but the real world of the felt experience of being embedded in human institutions. Well, when you look at history, I think the whole reason history has bogged down in the 20th century is because of the absence of belief in an attractor. This is the hideous legacy of existentialism and uh, all the philosophies constellated around it, that there is no attractor, there is no appetition for completion. Everything is referent to the past up through the present and no further. So that's what I think about the last part of the thing. What interested me more and has appealed more to my own kinkiness because it caused me to think something I had never thought before, even though on one level Rupert was uh, <coughs> taking liberties with my material. <laughs> this, this notion about complexity and cooling I saw, perhaps because I heard it from his lips rather than my own, I saw a dimension which I had never seen before, which is my tendency is always to carry any principle to the uh, ultimate extrapolation. And uh, if, in fact, the increase of complexity in the life of the universe is directly related to falling temperatures in the universe, then it seems to me it's reasonable to suppose that the most complex states in the projective history of the universe will occur at very low temperatures. Well, isn't it interesting then that um, phenomena like superconductivity and stuff like that uh, has to do with low temperatures? And superconductivity is fascinating to cybernetic engineers because it's a way to preserve information from decay. You see, if you put information into a, a superconducting circuit operating around absolute zero, it will be impossible to disrupt that circuit without destroying it. 
and uh, people like Erwin uh, Schrödinger as early as the mid-30s suggested that since life seeks to stabilize itself against mutation, the obvious principle to be brought in to aid in that task would be something very much like superconductivity. Well, I don't want to belabor the point in my little space of time, but in fact, the way in which charge transfer and things like that occur in DNA suggests that nature may have incorporated this principle into its mechanics. What this says to us in the present that is particularly poignant, I think, is that our cultural phase transition that we are going through vis-a-vis -vis machines <laughs> may signify that we are not, as I have always thought, very close to the maximized state of novelty, but that we're somewhere out in the middle of that wave that goes from the beginning to the end, and that what the cultural transition that we are doing is about is we are downloading all novelty uh, so far achieved into a much colder and stabler regime, the cold and stable regime of silicon crystals and arsenic-doped uh, chips and this sort of thing. And that, and this is, you know, a fairly appalling idea because I think we all have a horror of being replaced by machines. But on the other hand, prokaryotes were replaced by eukaryotes, and uh, uh, there have been several of these replacement scenarios in the history of life. So I think it's interesting that, uh, that you make this point about cooling and complexity. It seems to me to imply that in my own theory, the zero point may in fact be the absolute zero point, and that what the, what the time wave or the fractal of time really describes is uh, the fluctuation of the career of heat over the life of the universe, and that in domains of high heat, information is degraded and novelty is lost, and there is a kind of recidivist tendency, and when temperatures fall, order reasserts itself and, uh, and stabilizes. Well, I think that the storage in low temperatures is interesting because I think one of the things when Ralph said this mathematics is like language as a modeling system, um, I think there's a very big difference between spoken language and written language. When you get written language, the first ones we know about are written on rocks, the ultimate low temperature crystalline storage system. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, as given to Moses, were written on tablets of stone. I mean, this is this kind of permanent storage system. And, and you know, putting things in silicon crystals is a more sophisticated way, but this is essentially a low-temperature storage method. You couldn't do it, you couldn't write on, on water um, or in the wind. Um, so I think that the language, and the written language, creates the illusion for us of an independent world. I think the realm, I myself think the notion of platonic forms and this ideal, uh, this transcendent eternal world 
couldn't have arisen until written language had arisen because written language produced the model and by what I think of as a kind of idolatry these man-made symbols and structures languages and mathematics when written down can be imagined to endure forever in some kind of other realm as if there's some kind of celestial rock or celestial stone or celestial crystal in which they endure forever but the reality of language as it's existed for a far longer period of its history and as it exists right now here as we talk to each other is in spoken language and spoken language is a process that happens in time and the memory involved in spoken language which comes when stories are retold like the bards and, and, and the transmission in oral cultures there is no written record so the spoken record the, the story organically develops as time goes on and there's nobody around to say well look you've got the story wrong because in the book it's written like this the thing organically uh, evolves and so I think a model of language is a kind of model of reality an oral tradition has this constantly evolving and conserved and yet conserved model but as soon as you've got a written one as soon as you've got written records or written mathematical formulae you get the impression an imaginary realm of uh, sort of eternal forms by just sort of projecting the notion of things written down anyway that was just what I want to say in response to what you said and I think that's one way in which we get this or we could easily get I'm not saying for sure the mathematically platonic or Pythagorean realm is an illusion but it would be easy to see how such an illusion could be produced well, I imagine, <coughs> just to be contrary, that mathematics preceded not only writing, but mathematics probably preceded language as well. Certainly, mathematics preceded writing. And in mathematics, we have, for example, a circle, a line. I mean, these are, for Plato, the ideal ideals. Right? So do, do we need writing on stone? to think of uh, a line or a circle or a triangle as being um, eternal form. And uh, the evolution of this kind of mathematics preceding writing was probably done by drawing in sand. And writing evolved by drawing in sand, and only later you had drawing on stone. So <clears throat> I think, I mean, it's just possible that the... Uh, the idea of eternal forms, laws, and so on e emerged before writing on stone, and that writing on stone was just, as a matter of fact, a concretization of those. It just suggests a migration in uh, evolution from the immaterial to the material, from the abstract to the concrete. I mean, it's the opposite of what a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. um, these, your theories are the theories of chaos using this gentleman's terminology here, is this a model, how does it relate to, is it a model for the chaos in society in our world today? And what does it tell you about that? And yeah, I used to uh, answer when I went on the airplane and the person in the next seat would say, what, would, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a math professor. I do research in mathematics. And then they always say, that's my worst subject, and the conversation would end. <laughs> so I soon learned to pretend that it was something else. Well, I write books. Oh, yeah? What kind of books? Well, textbooks. Well, that would 
you know, end the conversation. <laughs> Once, as a kind of accident, I said, well, I study chaos theory. And the person immediately said, now that's a subject I know a lot about. <laughs> that was many years ago, but I rejected that. And so at that point, I would have answered to your question, no. I didn't think there was very much relationship between... Um, Mo mathematical models with chaotic behavior on the one hand and the chaos in life, what people are talking about when they say that's something I know a lot about, they're talking about a problem in their relationship or in the middle of the argument with their mate or something. So, um, but my attitude has changed over the years and more and more I've been trying to make models in the social sciences in general and now I have... Um, for example, a project in psychoanalysis to model, working with a group of psychoanalysts to model the therapeutic situation. And their idea was, I mean, in the experience of their practice of psychoanalysis, they had the feeling that the patient would present, that's a technical jargon I gather of that field, <laughs> would present uh, uh, chaotically that the presentation would become more chaotic and that was to them a clue that a trigger was approaching for an episode or something. So they came to me saying, could you model this? Could we have data where we could sort of meter the extent of chaos, like my parameter GN in the, in the ocean? And uh, that was a few years ago and so it's progressed and now I'm working on, I call it aerodynamics, E-R-O, um, models for the love relationship and for the synergy of in society, social synergy in a group of nations, for example, what does lead to war and what leads to cooperation? How do you resolve conflict and so on? So I do feel that it is, I won't say possible, it's conceivable in course of time, given its adequate evolution of the modeling art of this hermeneutical circle the gentleman has described so well in the context of the ships and the models for the ships, that we could reach a point where we had models that were decent in some sense to aid us in the understanding of complex social relationships. Um, a group of people, like two, three, a group this size, a group of nations, a world of nations, the evolution of society, and Terence's dream, a model for history itself. This is kind of, it's thinkable. It's not unthinkable. We're not at a point where we can meter the chaos in the room and say, they're about to break for dinner. Isn't what you've done today and yesterday sort of evidence of that with the with the um, thing that the chief's done with this with the humming and so forth? It, it is presuming that we are all somehow going to get together through this in some way, make it better for us to communicate and be in the room through this particular instrument. Yes. Um, and in relationships. What I know about relationships and working with people is it's a lot about energy and the energy that gets or doesn't get uh, focused with, with the two or three or if you have a group of eight or whatever. And it's, it's a lot of working with that energy. Well, I'm delighted to hear this optimism because I had recently, uh, a month or two or three ago, given a talk here to a group of social scientists about the possibilities of mathematical modeling. And uh, their response was really angry and hostile. The very idea of a mathematical anthropology or a mathematical sociology. 
they thought was really well, offensive. It reminds me of when the catastrophe theory had come out and people were looking at using it on politics, especially um, revolutionary politics, that there are certain political and social changes which occur peacefully and in an incremental manner, but those same changes will occur catastrophically if, for example, the economy is in trouble. So they were they were attempting to use catastrophe theory <coughs> to model politics. They weren't able to get enough data, I think, to make a practical model. Actually, that's a good case because it was very promising, it's still very promising, but it suffered a kind of a sociological or historical accident where a wave of uh, popular hostility built up over catastrophe theory in a series of newspaper articles and within the mathematical community, and it killed it. It killed a very promising strategy of model building for the social sciences. Anyway, it was very limited. It was a temporary stage on the way to what we are doing now with, with these systems. And I don't know if it will save the world or anything, but I can tell you it's a lot of fun. Ralph, in line with the question about sociology, I haven't asked you this question for a couple of years. I ask it every couple of years. Do you still cling to the mathematical proof of the impossibility of monogamy? <laughs> I, I don't remember your asking that two years ago, Terence. Nor, nor ever before. Uh, do you remember making the statement? I not only I don't remember, but I, I, I say I proclaim to you all it's impossible I ever made it, such a statement. Because as I've just explained uh, to Rupert, I don't believe in the resonance between the models and the actuality of ordinary life. I think that it emerges our, it evolves our understanding to play with models. Well, they do have a certain practical value, but I don't consider that the interesting part. So if I had a mathematical proof of the impossible, uh, impossibility of monogamy in a certain model universe of model relationship in, in level three, I might have spoken about that, and you made what Gregory Basin called a category error and thought I was talking <laughs> about human relationship, but you know I'd never actually speak about human relationship. I wish you told me this years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we stop? Well, Next question. Yes. Uh, this, this whole uh, uh, notion of the role of modeling uh, I find very uh, central to the discussion, especially where it's tied in with the feedback to uh, between the uh, the abstracting and the concretizing and, and blends them together so that your model is sailing your model out and, uh, and, and it keeps changing itself. Um, and, and, and tied to the, this notion of the attractor, uh, it, if you model an attractor, does your model have attractive properties? Does it begin to become uh, a concrete uh, 
entities. Uh, we'll have to ask Terence about this, since he's been using this word extensively today, appetition, and I don't know exactly what it means. Um, Terence, are models attractive? I mean, are they habit-forming? Is modeling a habit? I think so. I think if a model is a good model, it will uh, it will attract. It will begin to attract. <laughs> it will begin to pull uh, energy towards itself. It's almost like the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in a way, that's what I see the three of us and others mentionable as doing. We're we're trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's such a good idea that it will act as an attractor and the world will move. Yes, a good dream for a future with a future. Yes. Well, maybe it's an appropriate time just to make mention of this area of mythology and ritual. That uh, here we have a kind of model which has been thought to be crucial for the evolution of a society. And it could be that certain models are attractive in that realm. For example, the Trinity or one God. I think that um, it's possible. I mean, there's an alternative possibility in that the models aren't attractive exactly, but you have uh, springing up thousands of new societies around the planet every few years and some of them will survive. They're like mutations in the social sphere. And some will survive for a while and others not. And some may have a really huge history, like 3,000 or 5,000 years. Or our civilization, how old is this one? It starts with the Renaissance or in the time of Christ. Is say in the Renaissance, this particular model with its very complicated pantheon of gods and goddesses. Um, I, th I think it could be natural selection of societies that have adopted a certain model and made it a habit, whether attractive or not. And then the longevity is not because the model is attractive, but because it has a certain evolutionary advantage or advantage in whatever is the selection mechanism. Or it could be that certain models, like the Trinity, are intrinsically attractive, and that's why there are so many societies with uh, Trinity as their model, which had a long lifetime. Where does it make it over? You know, where does it, the model cross over? When does Frankenstein's monster get you know, citizenship papers? Or, uh, <laughs> on a kind of social reality, doesn't it? In, in a religious system, like Islam, for example, the, the model of, of God, which Islam has, this strongly em emphasized monotheism, actually takes on a social reality. It's reflected if you have one God, then the, then the earth is sacred, but then you have the idea there should be one sacred place on earth. So you have all pilgrimage to Mecca, all mosques pointing Mecca to Mecca. You have one God mirrored in this one central. So you have a model actually becoming a social reality. This is a common thing. But there's one, let me just conclude one further thought on this line. Um, 
I think that the history of religions is one of the things that it tells us is that all temples, images, um, diagrams, all the paraphernalia of religion, um, uh, ritual forms, in some sense have a modeling function. Some of them may be symbols that participate with the reality they're describing. Um, and one of the constant dynamics in, in, in the history of uh, at least Western religions is the way in which the models uh, are taken to be the reality by people. It's a recurrent danger of models, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition it's called idolatry. It's that the model of reality, the image of the God, is taken to be the God itself. Um, and I myself think that the, one of the problems of the mechanistic worldview is that the mathematical models of classical physics were taken by many people to be the actual reality governing the world. So the idea was there was this mathematical mind governing the world. And this became the god of the materialist or the atheist. This kind of, uh, the mathematical models, the images of reality became the ultimate reality for them. Uh, a possible interesting example of a, a religio-poetic myth becoming a powerful attractor. Uh, between the 11th and the 13th century in, in Western Europe, there was a very important paradigm shift of place, uh, namely the, the, the recognition of the importance of the feminine principle. And, and this uh, affected life in every way. Uh, one of the ways to do this is to, is to see the shift in the style of architecture, say, between the, uh, the Romanesque uh, uh, construction that uh, was used in the older portions of the Abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel and, uh, say, the, uh, the uh, Cathedral de Chartres. Now, Mont-Saint-Michel was built for the glorification of, of St. Michael, who was the most powerful uh, of all the angels, the one who threw Satan out of heaven, a very masculine thing. It's a masculine building, very little decoration, thick walls, very little uh, small windows, uh, solidly built, uh, a masculine style of architecture. If you go to Chartres, you see the apotheosis of the feminine style of architecture. This act, of, I, I think, is in the, in the sense of what you're calling a, an attractor because between the 11th and the 13th century, beginning around the, the beginning of the 12th century, hundreds of these Gothic cathedrals were built in Europe all for the adoration of the Blessed Virgin. Hundreds of them at an enormous expense, uh, an enormous effort. Uh, uh, remember, this was a poor time, and, and, and Europe put uh, an enormous amount of their effort into doing this, and I can only see this as the attractive power of a myth created around God, is it? Well, I, <clears throat> it must be something like that. I yeah. mean, it, and it must be something to do with the feminine aspect of creativity. You see, yeah. one of the things that Ralph and I were thinking about earlier today, we were having a conversation uh, after lunch, um, that we find both masculine and feminine creative principles in mythology, and both masculine and feminine creative principles come in trinities quite frequently, the triple goddess. Um, but then in the Christian world, the male trinity, and Ralph was saying, well, um, maybe there would be, uh, since there seems to be this possibility of looking at it either way, there must have been somewhere in which the two threes formed a six and the two creative trinities interlaced. And then I, uh, it occurred to us that the 
the um, Star of David is just such a diagram, two interpenetrating triangles. What the heck's it there? Well, any six-fold structure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this takes us into another realm of archetypes. It's six o'clock, and maybe it's time now to <laughs> stop, because after supper, um, we come to Terence and Ralph on creation, uh, chaos and imagination. At 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. And that's where we'll pick up with the next trialogue, which will be the podcast after next. Because, as most of you already know, I'm trying to put out three programs each week, at least for a little while. My plan is to put out two trialogues each week with an alternative program in between the trialogues. Once I get this first series podcast, I'll let you know what I decide about how soon the next series will come out, because maybe you'll be ready for a break from the trialoggers by then. In any event, I've got an embarrassment of riches in new program material right now, so it looks like we're going to have some interesting times together in the year ahead. Getting back to today's program, about 22 minutes or so into their conversation, you probably noticed Rupert talked about the difference between written and spoken language, particularly in respect to the permanence of the written word. I'm wondering if the Internet and podcasting are going to change his thinking about the spoken word not being very permanent. You know, who would have thought on that lovely September day at Esalen in 1989 that over 15 years later, so many more thousands of us would be able to hear this wonderful conversation. So here's a question for you. In terms of the way Rupert and Terence are talking about attractors, what kind of attractor or series of attractors do you think it was that prompted someone to record those conversations and then give them to Ralph and eventually draw them into being podcast here? So I'll let you have a toke or two on your own and come to your own conclusions on that one. And uh, speaking of having a toke or two, (laughs) it was only a couple of podcasts ago when I mentioned that when KMO interviewed me for his podcast on the Sea Realm, he told me about another program that can be found at www.dopecast.co.uk. And now that I've heard several programs, I have to say that it's one of the best podcasts I've heard so far. The host of the Dopecast goes by the handle Dope Fiend, and uh, being one myself, I can honestly say I've never met a Dope Fiend that I didn't like. (laughs) And after KMO told me about this program, I I checked their website and downloaded a couple of podcasts by the Dope Fiend, as well as a couple of other podcasts from what they're calling the Cannabis Podcast Network, all of which is hosted at dopecast.co.uk. Now, let me give full disclosure here. The thing is that ever since losing my MP3 player, I've only listened to short segments of these podcasts because it's just not very convenient to be tethered to a computer, particularly once you've enjoyed the freedom of a mobile MP3 player. Anyway, I sent Dope Fiend an email and told him I liked his program, at least the parts of it I'd heard. And now, to make a long story very short... Out of the blue, this weekend, I get a package in the mail, and 
lo and behold, it's actually from the Dope Fiend. You know, it was Christmas. It was just like Burning Man does Christmas, I guess, because just out of the blue, someone I don't even know sends me a really cool iRiver MP3 player with a built-in mic that looks like it's going to work perfectly at Burning Man and other road trips that I make to interview people. So when I tell you how much I like the podcast uh, from these guys, I, I don't want you to think it's because of this wonderful gesture or because he very kindly mentions the Psychedelic Salon from time to time. I just really, really enjoy these programs, and my bet is that most of you will too. You know, from some of your email, I know that many of you are feeling like you're out on the end of the line, particularly if you don't have any nearby friends to share a joint or to trip with. And I know how you feel, because that's sort of been my situation lately. You know, uh, most of my friends from the tribe are now physically far away, and so I sometimes get a little lonely myself. And then yesterday I got to hear some of Dope Fiend's programs on my new MP3 player, and did I ever have a ball? <laughs> you just have to hear these guys for yourself, and uh, you know, just have a toke or two, and listen to the Dope Fiend, Max Freak Out, the Toker, and some of their other friends and fellow podcasters like Queer Ninja, whose music podcast is also really quite brilliant, and then there's Xandor's Girl Reports that I now don't want to miss, and all in all, I'd just guarantee that you'll feel a lot more connected to the tribe just by listening to these interesting and entertaining programs. And don't miss the Sea Realm either. KMO is doing some really good work out there. And now I'm looking forward to working my way backwards through uh, their entire year of podcasting. All of these guys are having a real party that we can all join in on, at least in my humble opinion. And I think you'll find the production quality of these podcasts significantly higher than here in the salon. But they've given me some new ideas and definitely have inspired me to make some technical improvements here in the Psychedelic Salon. So thanks for sticking with us while I'm still figuring things out. Also, uh, I want to thank Jason and the other tech support people at DreamHost, where I'm in the process of moving the MatrixMasters.com family of websites. It's a major task for me, uh, particularly since I'm making some changes to the site as well. But once it's finished, I think you'll like some of the, the things, like the secure IM chat feature that we're going to eventually be able to use. So thanks for putting up with the super long podcast page for now. You know, I feel your pain, as the saying goes. And before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the podcast uh, page at the Psychedelic Salon, where you can find that, of course, at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And if you still have questions, you can send them in an email to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And I want to thank Jacques Cordell and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And thanks again, Ralph Abraham, both for participating in the trialogues and then for letting Bruce Damer and me digitize your tapes of these sessions and put them online for our friends here in the Psychedelic Salon to enjoy. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.